In 2016, the National Park Service celebrated its 100th anniversary. Throughout the year, millions of people from around the world traveled across the United States to visit our historic parks and monuments. I know I personally made stops at Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, and Yosemite. It was during this centennial summer that I had the chance to meet two truly remarkable people. My name is Dave Q. Um, I'm an artist based in Philadelphia, and I'm a public art project manager. My name is Alyssa Q, and I am a designer based in Philadelphia. Through the magic of social media, I connected with Dave and Alyssa through a series of Facebook posts and a remarkable project that they had funded through Kickstarter. As they were traveling home after a long journey, they just happened to make a stop near my home in Madison, Wisconsin. There we met for breakfast at an outdoor cafe to hear more about their recent travels. So we are just wrapping up a three and a half month trip across the U.S. traveling to six national parks. We went to Acadia, Smoky Mountains, Rocky Mountains, Zion, to Yosemite, to Yellowstone, and we went to each of these national parks to interview all different types of people to help us with the research for our book Campfire Stories. We only started going outdoors as adults, so we didn't grow up with campfire stories and we were always curious to learn more about these outdoor places that we we're starting to spend so much of our vacation time in. So we were looking around for a book of campfire stories from these national parks and didn't find it, so we thought, why, why don't we make it? Um, we're curious. <laughs> uh, so so we, we just spent all summer traveling to national parks to collect these campfire stories. Anytime you mix the national parks with storytelling, you're definitely going to pique my interest. Dave and Alyssa's project sparked a wonderful discussion on the importance of identity and a sense of place in the continuing efforts to protect and preserve our public lands for future generations. Inspired by camping excursions near their home in Philadelphia, these two artists ventured out to find others in their tribe of enthusiasts to share their tales of the wild. From the rocky beaches of Arcadia National Park in Maine to the granite cliffs of Yosemite Valley in California, they drove thousands of miles in search of stories that profoundly express our collective passion for the majestic beauty of the world outdoors. In the tradition of sharing tales of adventure around a roaring fire while camped out under the stars or huddled under blankets in a rustic lodge, Dave and Alyssa have gathered together a series of exciting narratives in a new book they call Campfire Stories. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project.
three and a half months is a long time to be on the road, but for us it was broken up into kind of two week stints at a time, you know, each. And the, the travel, the challenges of that travel kept being renewed because in every place we landed, so we'd get, we, we'd get into the Smoky Mountains and we knew we had the next two weeks to be in there, so we needed to figure out how to get around, how to work around the park. Um, you know, every single park has some sort of bear jam or elk jam or tortoise jam, and we needed to kind of like understand how long it took to get to places for the interviews that we had set up with people who works, uh, people you know, people with longer roots in the park uh, who could tell us a few things. And every two weeks, we just had to renew all the research, not only of understanding the park's history, understanding the people and the communities around them, but also practical things where we can take a shower, uh, where we can get some laundry done, where we can get, uh, since we're young people, we're looking for uh, a coffee shop, good coffee and Wi-Fi in each place. And it was it was an interesting way to kind of renew the trip every two weeks, but also exhausting since we needed to relearn all the basic things that you, you know, in, in ho at, a, at a place you call home, you know all that stuff. It's, it's kind of the language of the human environment and we need to not only learn the language of wilderness of each single place but also the human environments that kind of surround each place. Yeah I think also the the logistics of interviewing as many people as we did we interviewed I believe 48 people in total for at least an hour or more and so setting up those those interviews were just a logistical nightmare um, because you're in places that don't really have service or connection, which is what made coffee shops so important to have Wi-Fi. Um, but I think about every single park, we would be in the second week, kind of, or, or nearing the second week, and be in a panic of like we haven't talked to enough people or we haven't heard. But then always, like mid-week of that second week, everyone got back to us and we were able to do a lot of the interviews. So it was a lot of that first week understanding the place ourselves, having our own experiences and that second week really diving in. And that actually ended up working out well because we had context for questions that we wanted to ask or things we wanted to dive into. So tell me about your process. I mean, what were the questions that you were asking? What did you hope to get from the people that you were talking to? Process was not so much to collect the stories. We found out really early on. We, so we prototyped our process in Acadia National Park that's a place that we feel really comfortable. We've been going there the past eight, nine years. We you know, have some connections or knowledge of places. So we went there for a month in October and really played with our process, tried to figure out the right questions to ask. And we learned really quickly that you can't just ask, tell me a story about this place, which is, we thought was a very open-ended question, but that's really hard for most people to answer. And I realized that if someone asked me that about Philadelphia, I would have no idea where to start and I wouldn't know what was important to share. So pretty quickly, we kind of limited our, our questions and let the conversation go where it wanted to go. But we had three main questions. The first one was, what is, it, what is important for people to know about this place? So the way we would explain it is, somebody is reading about the Smoky Mountains. What needs to come across through the stories? What do you hope comes across about this place? And that would naturally lead into, I think, some really important like 
themes that we we gathered throughout so on our website we kind of go through these like five to eight themes that we gathered and a lot of that the meat of it came from that question and we, we talked to would you say like five to eight people per park or five to ten people five to ten. Um, so that really helped us get a sense of like the essence of each place sometimes that question doesn't quite get to everything about what makes that place special it's kind of a big question but we liked starting there so then we would follow that up with what are your favorite things about this park and that led to not only good insights about place but also places for us to go explore and maybe find new people to talk to or topics to learn more about and then it was also really important for us our, our third and final question was what should we not share about this place so what are some stories what are some topics what are things that we should be sensitive to as we're collecting stories or as we're talking to people that was kind of the, the meat of the conversation especially in the Smoky Mountains where you have a kind of troubling human history about the park and sometimes people really struggled with that because they love their park to death that they can't find anything wrong with it but that was important for us and I think really important to us traveling physically to all these places was so that we can understand those there's no way we could have done that remotely from Philadelphia so it was definitely worth the travel and I would imagine that each park had a, its own special, you know, kind of unique footprint and perhaps made a particular impression on you. Can you tell me what did you find most surprising about this project and this process? We designed this process because we thought it would just be disingenuous for us to select stories about place from Philadelphia without having visited ourselves. So not only was it there was was there this desire just to see all these great places, but also this understanding that, you know, we had to experience them firsthand to start to be able to know anything. I think what was surprising was how important that process was, how emotional people get as soon as you start talking about place and their place, how different people have such different ways of owning a place. As we started to kind of continue the, the process and get over the fear that the process wasn't working, we, we just kept getting into like these deeper conversations, uh, you know, our, our, our interviews are pretty general. We just kind of get a general sense from a single person, understanding that no single person owns a place, owns the history. We needed to kind of talk to a network of people with a different network of experiences. But yet, people own places in very different ways and get very emotional really quickly. So it was vital for us to show that we're here, we're very interested, we're very curious, and we want to hear from you. Um, it was surprising to see how important that showed itself to be as we did it more and did it more and did it more. There was a historian in the Rocky Mountains who, you know, we had a great conversation at a coffee shop with him, and I think nearing the end of the conversation, he was like, what are you doing on Tuesday? And we're like, nothing, what do you, <laughs> what do you have planned? And he spent the day driving us around the Rocky Mountain region, pointing out places of significance and giving us this like totally amazing behind the scenes tour of the area. And it just really meant a lot to us that he was so invested in our success and really was so proud of this place that he's, he, he works for, but he also lives and he loves. That was surprising, the, the lengths that people went. I think 
One other, other thing that I thought was surprising was how validated I felt in the process of the book that we're creating. I don't know what I anticipated, but the amount of work that we had to do in the, we, in the libraries, we spent a lot of our time in libraries to find stories in all different types of books. You know, we'd be looking at like a children's book to some sort of like overall history book and an anthology of literature writers and they weren't all in one place and there were hidden gems in different places that not an everyday person would pick up you know this like huge massive history book about Yellowstone National Park but maybe Campfire Stories is a little bit more accessible and it's the same story but pulled together in a different way and that was just really validating to know that our book was would be useful. So tell me about the book itself in terms of the format, the stories. You have a lot of great information about people's impressions of the park, but where are the story is going to come from? How are you going to tell that part of the narrative in this book? The final book is going to be an anthology. I think it's going to be formatted in a way where each chapter will kind of be uh, one of the parts that we visited. The challenge of each chapter is going to be to find four or five stories that give you a sense of the essence of these places. The interviews that we've conducted, you know, that's really only the research. And we've been posting about them online just to share what our process has been and also, you know, bring attention to the people that live and love, live in and love these places. I think we kind of see this as, you know, the intersection of our work, art and design, I think we'll kind of like treat it similarly when we get back of kind of looking at everything we have, all the pieces we have and then figure out how we want to talk about each of the stories we select and sort of design that um, into the book. So we thought, I think at the beginning, this would just strictly be an anthology, you know, chapter one, Acadia National Park, this story, this story, this story. But I think we realized as we went that the stories kind of deserve a little bit more than that. and. As we've been talking to more and more people on the road and also through Kickstarter, uh, we've been getting messages and people are really interested in sort of why we chose each story and having a little bit more depth into it. But I think it's also important to think of the reader. We don't want to disrupt their reading experience. So at the end of the day, we want this book to be pulled out around a campfire with your family and you don't want to have to sift through all of these like boring introductory paragraphs or pages to get to the story so we don't want that to interfere but it does seem important to the people who are invested in our project so far for them to just know why we selected the stories I think that'll be our design process later on is how to and we'll work closely with our graphic designer to figure out how do we share this without interfering with the overall experience of telling a story. Can you tell me which were the parks that you visited? We went to Acadia National Park, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Rocky Mountains National Park, Zion National Park, Yosemite National Park, and Yellowstone National Park. So I won't ask you to tell me your favorite one. <laughs> That's easy. It, is it easy? Yeah. What What was your What was your favorite? Uh, Acadia National Park. Okay. Well, that I, that's near where you where you're from. You spent a lot of time there. Why uh, Why Acadia? 
I was actually really surprised by that. I thought that after spending two weeks in all of these other amazing national parks, I would be like, okay, Acadia is cool, but like this place is amazing. Um, I, I, I think Acadia might be more of a, a personal, sort of like emotional connection. I was born in Nashua, New Hampshire, so I think some of the most like visceral memories you have from being a kid and being outside, like the, the smells, the feeling of the air, it's similar in Acadia for me. It's also where Dave and I kind of fell in love with the outdoors. We actually went to Acadia by accident, kind of. We intended to go to Toronto, but they had a trash strike at the time, and even like the basketball courts were filled to the tops of the fences with garbage bags because there's nowhere for the trash to go. So all of the city museums and everything was just shut down and closed because they couldn't accommodate anything. So we rerouted and we went to Acadia National Park and that was our first time camping. We did everything wrong. We slept on the ground and it's granite (laughs) under you. So it was just sucked the heat from our bodies. But it's kind of where we fell in love with the outdoors. So I think I have that connection. I learned from Terry Tempest Williams, actually, in her story about Acadia in her new book. She calls it a an eco ecotone, ecotone um, where you have radically different environments jutted up against each other. And I think that's why I am really attracted to Acadia is that you have these like stunning coastal cliffs against the ocean, and then you have like pine forests right there, and you can have totally different experiences in one tiny tiny little park. I find Acadia very accessible. It is small and it's very drivable and I think for us that was important not growing up so much going hiking or backpacking or anything to have like a town nearby or to have something that we could comprehend in our minds where you go to you know Yellowstone and it could take you hours to get from one place to another. And that can be scary for people. And it is funny now that I think we would consider ourselves outdoors people that I still love Acadia just the same for that reason, that it is small and accessible. You would think I would grow out of that and want to be in the middle of nowhere. So, Dave, do you feel the same way? I wasn't born (laughs) in in New England. But absolutely, that's the place where our love for the outdoors grew. You know, it's the first place that we visited. You know, when we had to cancel our Toronto trip, we had that time off of work. We needed uh, a place we could go to without reservations, right? So Acadia, just somebody said, hey, Acadia is really nice. And we said, why not? It's the first place we camped, and then we kept going back there. So we have 10 years, kind of 10 years of memories there. So it's absolutely still a place we'll continue to go back to. It's accessible to us. I really liked Yosemite on this trip. I think at that point in the trip, that was two months in, we've had you know three months of views. So like the views weren't, they were still impressive, but they weren't going to like be the flat out like impressive thing. But Yosemite has great views. But the thing I really liked about Yosemite is that there's such a great culture in and around that park. There's so many coming of age stories that people just move to Yosemite to spend their adult childhoods and then they that's a term I learned. You have an adult childhood, just old enough to pick where you want to live, young enough to not have kids. So many people came to Yosemite and just ended up staying there. Yosemite saved them is what we heard a lot. And that, that was cool to, you know, there's not only the national park and a lot of things to see and do for that reason, but also this culture of people who 
just a great culture, a great community, uh, you know, music at the Mobile, a, a gas station just outside the east side that has a concert every Thursday night. And a great um, deli. They have really good food that's been in gourmet magazines. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's like the National Park plus the California bum crowd that's just like finding ways to just find, you know, the, the most important thing is to live in Yosemite and everything else, you, you eat whatever you have to eat, cat food sometimes, and you, you, make, it, you make it work, right? So the, I, I really like Yosemite even more on this trip. Is there a story that you might be able to share with me that might make it in your book, might not, but something that was particularly memorable for you in terms of the people that you talked to or some of the narratives that you were able to experience? I mean, I don't know if this is because it's the most recent park, but the the wolf story for Yellowstone. Do you want to? I feel like you're more knowledgeable about the Wolf Club, which is a really fascinating <laughs> community of people who who basically their full time jobs that they've they've opted into themselves is to go watch the the wolves uh, in the wee hours of the morning. A lot of them go to Slough Creek. Um, and then there are some that go to Hayden Valley, I believe, mm -hmm. but they wake up, you know, 4 a.m. and drive out to see the wolves. But there's this great story called Wolf. It's a piece of fiction, but it really captures well the dynamics of the wolf club. And it, and it follows a single person as they're trying to join that wolf club. You know, they're all of a sudden, for some reason, their modern life doesn't uh, fit them anymore. And they find some solace in the wolves and it's, it's a story about th that person trying to trying to inundate himself with a new pack essentially and the the rest of his family trying to adjust to that I think it's a it's, it's a wonderful modern story um, you know the wolf club is something that's only developed since the wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone in 95 and it's kind of something that people do know about but don't know about yet Right. You, you, if, if you're in Yellowstone, you know you 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 are told eventually that if you go to Slough Creek, look for the people with the scopes, and then you can see the wolves. But yeah, what you don't know about those people is that they're there all the time. They've dedicated their lives to the wolves, and then they also have a little bit of a pack mentality. And I think this story really captures that well. Yeah, and I I found this story really fascinating and interesting because it really um, captures the human side of the parks. So it's like, in a way, these people have become the spectacle, the, the sight to go see. It's, you know, instead of like a natural feature like Old Faithful or, you know, Mount Washburn or something, it's these group of people who just are loving these parks to death. And it gives you this insight that you wouldn't have otherwise into the group. It's kind of like an insider's look. And I think that's kind of the fun of going to Sloop Creek at 5 a.m. is because you feel like you're like, you know something that not everyone else does. So it sounds like a lot of what will come out of this anthology are not just the play stories, but the people stories as well. Yes. And I think in our earlier conversation, you were expressing to me the importance of making sure that you have a broad representation of different aspects of different people throughout the American populace. Why was that important to you? Why, do you, why is it important to have multiple voices be shared in the narratives that you're sharing with us? I think it's important for us because once you start to learn a little bit about history, you start to realize that the story is always more complex than is presented to you. Um, and especially in the stories of the parks, there are 
so many histories that aren't told. Stories of people of color who are very important in the, in, the, in the formation of these parks. Stories of women pioneers that are also, most, most of it wouldn't have happened without them. I guess the, the only thing we knew heading out was that every single park had some sort of complex history with their native tribes. The people who called those places home before you know, another, another culture came in, drew a boundary around the land and said, this is a national park now. So I think those stories are important to tell because we, you know, a lot of people want to avoid those stories, kind of complex histories. We want a simplified narrative. We want to have a simple culture that we can understand. But the idea of the preservation of land, I think, is so much more enriched when you understand that so many different types of people have contributed to it through complex histories, through kind of strange feelings about this idea. But that this idea of preservation of land and enjoying the outdoors can unite so many different types of people is a story we absolutely need to tell. To ignore it because you know they're unpleasant or uncomfortable is actually a huge disservice to that idea. And I think a lot of that will be difficult to capture in stories to be shared around a campfire, but I think what will be important is that people can find themselves in the story. We might not be able to, you know, talk to some of these like bigger issues in our book necessarily, but just the simple act of including them amongst, you know, the typical pioneer explorer story, that they're part of that same history, I think will be really powerful for, for, for people, all different types of people. What is the most important thing that you want people to come away with, you know, when they are gathered around the campfire and they're, they're listening to your stories? The thing we encountered early on, you know, when we asked people, What's the story that you have? What was surprising to us at the time was that nobody could kind of answer that question outright. But when we think about it, we can't answer that question either. And conversely, we're in a time where storytelling is such a big part of our culture. They're, like Storytelling is bigger than it ever has been before. Podcasts are being consumed uh, rapidly. Uh, television is in a place where you can tell a story for like eight seasons. All of a sudden like you know that it's a, become a storyteller's medium in a way that you know the same thing does it, it doesn't have to end where it started. There's no, no more sitcoms really. But these types of stories are so produced. There's, there's, there, there's so much work and production that goes into those stories that we've become at the same time that we're devouring stories we've become disconnected from our own and we can no longer answer the question like, do you have a story to tell? Everybody has a story to tell. Um, everybody has an important story to tell. And there are definitely more stories that need to be more inclusive about the different types of experiences that we're having. So, you know, that I think the most important thing is that as we're digging up campfire stories, that people start to kind of be able to read them, but also share them. And then hopefully that, that's a step towards sharing your own story. Yeah, I think we were surprised. Um, we hosted a couple campfire story nights, one in Acadia National Park and another in Yosemite. And our intention was to come with some stories, but both of the events had invited people to come share campfire stories. It was more a participatory thing. We were surprised to find how many people came just to hear stories. People wanted the stories, and many of them also didn't have them. So we ended up sharing more stories than we had anticipated. But that to us was a sign of, you know, hey, people 
want this. They kind of want to bring back this tradition of sharing stories together. And that that's kind of our goal. And it's kind of a funny one as, as people who don't necessarily identify as storytellers, but I think that we are through our design work, through our art, and, and hope for more people to have that experience as well. Our national parks are so full of stories. You know, we spend two weeks in each, each of these places just talking to people, uncovering kind of texts that already exist, and we were overwhelmed in each place by how much we found. And when we go back to Philadelphia, we'll, we have huge reading lists for every single park. I'd encourage anyone to go you, you can go to a national park and discover so many stories, and these national parks are kept open so that, you know, they can mean whatever they mean to you. You know, you can do your own research, you can find out what you're interested in. If you're not interested in that, you can go and make your own stories. These are places where there are so many family traditions that take root. So, I just encourage everybody to go discover the outdoors, discover the stories that these places have to tell. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been yeah, great. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, James. The new book, Campfire Stories, will be out soon. Dave and Alyssa are taking a bit of a break from riding as they embark on another great adventure. They recently welcomed the arrival of a baby daughter named Lula June. You can learn more about their project and even pre-order a copy online at campfirestoriesbook.com. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Edward Mills.